Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. We are back in the book of Daniel and have taken a little break from Daniel, but we are back in uh, the book of Daniel today. We're in chapter number eight. If you want to turn there, we'll have all the verses up here, but this is uh, an amazing chapter. And as, as we study this chapter, we look back and we see this as history because we see these events that they have happened and we can point to historical times and places and people that these have been fulfilled in. But remember, when Daniel is writing this, Daniel's writing this before it happens. And that is what's so amazing. That's why many Bible scholars, they call this the most prophetic chapter in all of the Bible. Because it is amazing. It's not just some vague descriptions. It is with with precise detail that Daniel is predicting world rulers and nations and is going to give details about them that are specific and it happened and he's predicting it's going to happen a couple hundred years before it happens and this is one of the reasons why critics of the bible try to try to uh, dismiss Daniel the, the dating of when Daniel was written Right? They say there's no way that, well, first of all, they don't even believe there was a guy named Daniel that wrote this. But there, they, no way this could have been written beforehand because of how precise it is. Because of how accurate that it is. But the thing about it is, the evidence shows that, in fact, there's a lot of good evidence that shows Daniel was written 500 something B.C. when we claim it was written. There's several reasons. In fact, we may take a whole sermon on that in the weeks ahead, or at least part of a sermon, um, to just talk about why we think Daniel was written in the time it was written. It, It really is, the evidence sure points to that. Really, the critics' only thing they really point out, the main thing they point out is, well, it couldn't have been because there's no way someone could have predicted something before it happened. But that's why we're saying the Bible's unique. The Bible was written by God. One reason we know that the Bible is God-breathed, that it came from not the mind of man, but from the mind of God, is because it predicts things are going to happen before they happen, and those things happen. So Daniel chapter 8, and this is just, it might seem more of like a history lesson, because again, as looking back on these things, we look back in history, we see these things fulfilled and so some of you guys have met uh some of you guys met my father he's with the lord now but before he was a pastor he was a history teacher for about 16 years and so whenever like you know whenever in in his sermons he would start talking about i mean things like this in daniel or he would talk about history he would just get so excited because he would point out how when you look back at at world history, when you look back, even like our own history as a nation, you just see the providence of God and the hand of God orchestrating things. Now, that's not saying like everything about our history is, you know, great and grand and glorious. Like God works through imperfect people, as we're going to see in in Daniel chapter 8. God worked through some very evil, vicious, bloodthirsty world conquerors. But yet we see the hand of God in all of it. We see the providence of God. We see the sovereignty of God over kings and rulers and over nations. 
So Daniel is going to talk about this vision he has. Daniel has a vision. He's going to get revelation from God, but he's not going to understand it. He's going to need Gabriel, the angel, to explain to him and give him the interpretation of this vision. And how many of you have ever read the Bible and had no earthly idea what it was talking about? Right? Sometimes we need uh, to meditate on it. We need to pray on it. We need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Today, you know, God's probably not going to send an angel, but we have the Holy Spirit. God has given to the church teachers to help explain the passage of Scripture. I, for one, am super thankful, yes, for teachers in the local church, but just teachers in general. Like a passage like this, no exaggeration, I probably listened to, you know, four different um, four different pastors on this passage and read another four commentaries that people have written. Well, these are teachers. These are gifted people that God gives. That doesn't mean you and I with the Holy Spirit can't understand scripture, but a teacher is to help supplement those things. Amen. And so we're thankful for that. God, yes, gives us his word, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to understand it. He gives us teachers to help us understand what the scripture is saying. Well, Daniel's not going to understand the revelation from God immediately. So he's going to send, God's going to send Gabriel the angel. In fact, and we're going to hit every verse, but let's skip to verse 15 to start out. Daniel gets this vision and, and, and Daniel, we're going to look at what the vision was and the interpretation, but Daniel's grieved in his spirit. It says that, that the visions of his head troubled him in verse 15. He says, I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of this. Oh, sorry, it would probably be helpful if I read chapter 8 instead of chapter 7. Sorry. Chapter 8, verse 15. And it came to pass, and honestly, verse 15 of, of chapter uh, 7 kind of fit there for a second. And it came to pass, when I even, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought for the meaning. And then, behold, there stood before me, as the appearance of a man, and I heard a voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So Daniel gets a vision, doesn't understand it, and then God shows up. Many Bible uh, teachers think that this here, this appearance of a man and this voice, this is a Christophany. This is an appearance of Christ before he is incarnate. See, because when Christ came, he was born, lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. Well, Christ eternally existed before that. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus was the one doing the creating. Jesus, the Son, God the Son with the Father, was creating all things. The book of Colossians tells us that. That he created all things, not all other things, after he himself was created. That the Jehovah's Witnesses try to slip in their translation. No, Jesus was the creator along with the Father. And so this is an appearance where, where Christ is showing up and he's, he's telling Gabriel, give Daniel the interpretation of this vision. So what is this vision? Well, let's look at it. Chapter Number eight, verse one, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So this is a reoccurring vision. And Daniel's looking back now 
in the time of, of Belshazzar. Remember King Belshazzar, chapter 5, like the city surrounded by the Medes and Persians. And this guy's throwing this wild party and just oblivious to the danger. He thinks he's just invincible. It's Babylon, man. Nobody's going to come in. And that night, the Medes and, and Persians overtook him. Well, an interesting note about Belshazzar is for years, people didn't think there's any such person. You know, whoever wrote this wasn't Daniel. And whoever wrote it, they're just making stuff up right now. No evidence of Belshazzar. Well, then what happens? We discover through archaeology, we discover the Nabonidus cylinders, which is history, more history of Babylon. And in that, it names Belshazzar. Not only does it name him, but it talks about how that he, his father Nabonidus left him in charge when he went out to fight the Persians. So it's like, whoa, once again, you see history and archaeology. It doesn't, it doesn't disprove the Bible. The more we find, the more we discover it actually affirms the Bible. And so Daniel is now telling us, he's, he's writing and he's remembering back when Belshazzar was king in the third year of his reign. He says, I saw a vision. It says, and this vision happens when he was in Shushan in the palace. So he's in a place, Shushan, this is about 230 miles away from Babylon. Shushan was like an important fortress uh, there in, in this region, and, and he's away probably like, probably on the, the king's business and government business. Daniel worked for the king, worked for the government. It seemed like by the time Belshazzar was on the scene, he was more in kind of semi-retirement mode. But, but uh, Daniel's in Shushan, he gets this vision, and he's between, he says, I was uh, by the river Uli. So Uli is like uh, pretty much like a canal that was connecting two rivers on either side of the city. This is where Daniel's at. He gets this vision. He says, I lifted up my eyes and saw. And he says, there stood before the river a ram. A ram had two horns. So this ram with two horns. Now, to us, maybe it, it seems a little bit odd and confusing. Like, why are these visions of these animals and these horns? Well, this was symbolic of, of world leaders. This was symbolic of nations. And it really isn't really, it, it's really not all that uncommon for us either. Because we see that animals maybe represent, a, a, a country has a, a, an animal, is there, that's their national animal. Or a team has a mascot of some kind of animal. And so this is similar to that. It's like Daniel has these visions of animal, but they're representing kingdoms. And so this vision he has, there was a ram. And it had two horns, and it says one was higher than the other. The higher one, or the more powerful one, the more dominant one, that comes up second. So what's this ram that he's talking about? He says that the ram, verse 4, it pushed westward, northward, southward, so that no beast could stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver him. And he did according to his will and became great. Basically saying this kingdom is powerful. No one can stop this kingdom. He does what he wants. This kingdom is powerful. Nobody else can stop him. Well, we see in when Gabriel gives Daniel the interpretation of this, he gives an explanation. Verse 20, the ram that thou saw, he says it has two horns. It's the kings of Medea and Persia. So this ram, this is the Medes and Persians. And we know this from history. And here's what's really interesting, because it says that this ram 
it is going to go westward, northward, and southward. Well, we know from history, the Persian Empire, they conquer Babylon and Syria to the west. The Persian Empire conquers Armenia to the north and Egypt and Ethiopia to the south. And this is interesting because we can look on history and see, yes, the Persians went west, north, and south, and they, they didn't go east. Well, Daniel's saying this is what's going to happen. And not only that, but the two horns, the second one coming up, is going to be more powerful. And that's what happened. Medea, the, the, the Medes, they were more powerful at first. But then the Persians basically absorbed their kingdom. The Persians became more powerful. We know that from history, right? You know of the Persian Empire. Not a whole lot about Medea, not a whole lot about the Medes. Well, this is consistent uh, with that. And we see this is prophesied. And the, uh, the Persians, they actually thought of a ram as the guardian spirit for their kingdom. Well, Daniel's saying this, that there's a kingdom of the Medes and Persians. It is a ram that has two horns, but they're going to be overtaken by a goat. This goat is going to overtake them. He says, I was, verse 5, I was considering and behold a he-goat, this male goat. It comes from the west on the face of the whole earth and it touched not the ground. The goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Once again, a horn, it's a symbol of power and strength. It says, and I saw him come close unto the ram, or verse 6, sorry. And it came to the ram that had two horns. And standing by the river, and it ran unto him in the fury of his power. It says that he was moved with anger. He smote the ram. He broke his horns. There was no power in the ram. It says there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So here it is. You have this goat that's defeating this ram. Well, what is this talking about? Well, Gabriel's going to explain to Daniel in uh, verse uh, number 20. The ram that thou sawest, having... Oh, sorry, with two horns, that's the, the Medes and Persians. And the goat, verse 21, is the king of Greece. So this goat's the king of Greece and has a great horn between his eyes. This is the first king. This is the first ruler of, of, of the Greeks. Now that being broken, there's going to stand up four kingdoms. As four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So Daniel's predicting this, that... The Medo-Persian Empire, that is the ram with two horns. But they're going to be overthrown by Greece. This goat that has one horn. Now, you wouldn't think a goat's going to overcome a ram with two horns, but it's going to happen. Greece, the Greek Empire, they are going to overthrow the Persians. And this is exactly, we know from history, is what happened. And He's going to move with anger and fury. Many think that this is because Alexander the Great had previously lost to the Persians. There was a lot of conflicts between the Greeks and the Persians. We know this from history. In fact, there's even movies, like not uh, too old the movies out now, that, that highlight some of these conflicts. When the Greeks were being united and they were trying to fight the Persians and well, Alexander the Great is going to be the one that's going to unite everyone and going to eventually become strong enough to defeat the Persians. In fact, in this last battle that, that really sealed the fate of the Persian Empire, get this. 
Alexander the Great's army only loses about 100 soldiers. Guess how many the Persians lose? 20,000. Now, even if you're not good at math, like, you know, okay, that percentage is not looking good for the Persians, right? They're done for at this. Alexander the Great is going to rise to power. Now, the Persians have them outnumbered. They, they have more wealth. But Alexander the Great's going to defeat them. And this was his life goal. Alexander's father, really, his whole vision and life purpose was that they would, that the Greeks would defeat the Persians. Alexander the Great, his parents both are murdered, and he's going to rise to power. He's like this warrior king, and he steps on the scene early, and he moves quickly. In fact, when it says that his feet didn't touch the ground, and remember chapter 7, it refers to, to Alexander the Great in the Greek Empire as a leopard, because it moves so quickly. Alexander the Great moved so fast, he would march his troops for days and days without resting because that was part of his strategy. He didn't want other nations to form alliances and to really uh, be prepared for battle. And so he would just come so quickly before people could get organized and he would defeat nations. Now there's exceptions like remember the prophecy we talked about a couple years ago. Um, if you were, were here then, we talked about an amazing prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that predicts the destruction of the city of Tyre. That Alexander the Great, Babylon's going to come and overtake some of the surrounding towns, but ultimately Tyre is going to be overthrown. Now, Tyre was a world power at the time Ezekiel writes this, right? So it's not like some little weak nation that probably is going to get overthrown anyway. No, they were a world power. And Ezekiel predicts they're going to be destroyed. They're gonna, their city's going to be thrown into the sea. Well, that's exactly what happened. And Alexander the Great's the one that did it. And he like besieged the city for, for months and months. And, but that's not typically how Alexander the Great would move. He would go quickly. And he would conquer people. And then pretty much... Let them do their thing. I mean, he would steal from them, you know, kill people that tried to oppose him. And I mean, just, you know, not the, not the kind of guy you'd want to hang out with. Like, he was pretty much good at stealing and killing people. Like, that's what he did. And he did it quickly. In fact, by the time he was in his early 30s, Alexander had conquered much of the known world. Historians record, now sometimes like historians can exaggerate things, and so we don't know if these details are like super true, but it, it's been said that Alexander the Great wept because he had no one else left to conquer when he was in his early 30s. I mean, poor guy, right? Like, man, nobody else left to kill, nobody else left to conquer. But Alexander the Great moved quickly, and this is exactly what Daniel's saying is going to happen. His feet aren't going to touch the ground. He's going to move like a leopard. He's going to be strong. Now, this in itself is amazing. But this is far from the end of Daniel's prophecy here. In fact, here's something. It's important to bring this up. Because this is one of those things that, that help. Not the only thing and not even the best piece of evidence. But it is important piece of the early dating of Daniel. So there's a first century historian by the name of Josephus, right? Josephus lived, we think, probably at the time of Christ. Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he wrote several volumes of the antiquities or the history of the Jews. 
Well, Josephus is going to record, and this was probably passed on to him from tradition and maybe even some ancient writings, but Josephus writes about Alexander the Great. You know, this was hundreds of years before Josephus. But Josephus is writing about an account that was passed down to him about Jewish history. That when Alexander the Great was coming to Jerusalem, that there was a priest that comes out to meet Alexander. And he's coming out not really sure what Alexander's going to do and what exactly is, I mean, probably know what his intentions are, but he comes out to meet Alexander and he's dressed in purple. Alexander is floored by this. Because years prior, Alexander has this dream or this vision, supposedly, that someone appeared to him in a vision, was wearing all purple, and told him, the time of your destiny has come, go and conquer, you're going to be victorious. Alexander has this vision, or this dream, this is what reportedly is, or re is recorded for us, that supposedly he had this vision. Well, this priest comes out to meet him dressed in all purple. And Alexander is floored by this because he tells the priest, you are the one that was in my dream or in my vision. The priest then invites him into the temple and he opens up the book of Daniel, chapter eight. And he shows to Alexander, Alexander, this is you. The prophet Daniel predicted that you would be this world conqueror. It's recorded that, the, that Alexander made a sacrifice to the God and worshipped God. And we don't know if this was just something, he, a one-time thing in honor. It doesn't seem likely that he was converted based upon what we know of Alexander. Uh, but it's just an interesting thing to note. This is amazing. That Alexander was shown this prophetic passage in Daniel. And it said that he then went forth with confidence to continue conquering. Alexander was very powerful. But what else does it say about him? It says that when he was strong, he's going to be broken. When he's strong, he's going to be broken. Verse number 8 says, therefore, the he-go, or this male goat, he says he waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And it came up four notable ones towards the winds of heaven. Skip over to verse number 21. It says the, the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So Daniel's predicting that this king of Greece, he's going to be strong, but then he's going to be broken. He's going to die. And out of him, there's going to come up four other kingdoms. Well, we know this is exactly what happens in history. Alexander mysteriously dies of some kind of disease. There's some discrepancy over what exactly it was. Some think it was pneumonia. Some think that he just some, some unknown illness. But he dies while he's strong. He's 33 years old when he dies. He's going to die suddenly. And on his deathbed, they ask Alexander, who do you want to give your kingdom to? 
Well, normally it would be a relative. Normally it would be someone he's going to name as his heir. But Alexander doesn't do this. He says, give my kingdom to the strong. So what do they do? They give it to his four generals. As you can imagine, this does not create the most stable environment here. He gives it to his four generals. Well, we can look in history and, and we can see this. We see the four generals. Well, originally there were five. The fifth one kind of phased out right away. So there's four notable ones, which is what Daniel prophesies. The first general got the area to the west, the Macedonia area. The Macedonia area. This is Cassander. Uh, Lysimachus got the, the area of Asia. Ptolemy, the P is silent. Ptolemy gets Egypt. And Seleucus gets Syria. And so these are the four notable kings that are going to arise out of this one kingdom. This is what Daniel says is going to happen. He's predicting this. Now keep in mind, there's good evidence that Daniel was written around 530-something B.C. This is hundreds of years before this happens. Like, we look back, it's history. But when Daniel's writing, this is prophetic. This is yet to come. That these four notable horns, they're going to come out of it, but it says not in his power. None of them are going to be as strong as, Dan, or as, um, as, as Alexander. But he says, in the latter time of their kingdom, verse 23... When the transgressions are come to a full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences, he's going to stand up. In his power, he's going to be mighty, but not by his own power. He's going to destroy wonderfully. He's going to prosper. He's going he, he, to destroy the mighty and the holy people. This is talking about God's people, Israel. And through his policy, verse 25, he's going to prosper. He's going to magnify himself. And by peace, he's going to destroy many. So this guy is going to be cunning. He's going to be shrewd in an evil way. He's going to, going to be uh, very, very evil and sinister. He's going to use sinister schemes to get in position. In the original, um, in the original vision, Daniel says in verse 9, this is the little horn. He's going, to ex he's going to be exceeding great toward the south and towards the east and towards the pleasant land. This is Israel. He's going to, um, in verse 10, it says that he's going to cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground. Now, many think, um, there might be a gentleman in the lobby that might need, need a little help. Um, there, many think this is talking about the Jews. Uh, people like a Bible teacher like, uh, um, like Michael Heiser would think that this is talking of like the spiritual realm. That there is... Some kind of spiritual warfare taking place. And, and by the way, I think both are very possible scenarios. But we know this. We know this, that this little horn, he's going to be ferocious. He's going to be evil. He's going to be sinister, right? And we know this from history. So this little horn that's coming, this is... Someone by the name of Antiochus. So it's Antiochus IV. He's going to come out of the, this Seleucus, uh, Seleucian Empire. right? And this is what Daniel's saying is going to happen, right? It's Alexander the Great, the king of Greece. 
He's that horn. He's going to be broken. And there's going to come four kingdoms out of that. And out of one of those is going to come, he says, out of one of them is going to come forth a little horn. And he says, he's going to become exceeding great. Not going to start out great. Not going to start out powerful. But he's going to become great. And this is exactly what happens with Antiochus. So Antiochus shouldn't even be the ruler of the Seleucus Empire. It's actually his brother, Seleucus IV, who has the, um, has the kingdom. He's the one in control. But he's not going to stay in control. So at this time, uh, Rome is becoming powerful. Right? The Roman Empire's right on their heels, and they're going to overtake, really, and they're going to become the next dominant world empire. So Rome actually takes Antiochus, the brother of Seleucus IV, they take him as a political prisoner. They have him in Rome, and, but yet, yet um, Antiochus is so crafty, he's, he's so cunning, Somehow he works out this prisoner exchange with Rome. And so his nephew is exchanged for him. And we don't know all the details, like, like how Antiochus worked this out. But Antiochus works out this prisoner exchange with Rome. And Antiochus is going to end up back in the land. Well, Seleucus IV is going to become assassinated. Now, there's not direct evidence that says that Antiochus did it. But just knowing this joker, like, you know he's probably behind it. This guy is sinister. This guy is evil. This guy is cunning. So now, guess who's in charge? Antiochus. Oh, but he's co-reigning with the rightful heir, who's like a toddler at the time. Like, yeah, right. We know who's in charge. We know who's pulling the strings. Well, as that toddler grows, guess what happens? Antiochus has him killed. So and Antiochus, Antiochus, his name is Antiochus, it's Antiochus IV, but Antiochus gives himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes. Right? Epiphanes means like this radiant one. He like he honestly puts himself in the place of God. So now Antiochus Epiphanes is in charge of this Seleucian Empire. And what's he gonna do? Exactly what Daniel predicts he's going to do. Let's read this again. It says that he's going to wax great, even to the host of heaven. He's going to cast some down. He's going to stomp them to the ground. He's going to magnify himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, daily sacrifice is going to be taken away. So sacrifices in the temple are going to stop. And it says the place of the sanctuary is going to be cast down. And a host was given to him of daily sacrifice by reason of the transgression. It was cast down to the ground and it, it prospered. And then I heard one saint speaking to another about how long this vision is going to be. It says concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation. He's going to desolate this, the temple. And he said unto me, 2,000. 300 days shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So there's a period of time the sacrifices in the temple are going to be taken away. 
this little horn is going to take away sacrifice. He's going to desecrate the temple. It's going to be a bloodbath. Many people are going to die. This is when Gabriel's explaining the vision. Let's skip now ahead to verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences shall stand up. This guy's evil. He's sinister. He's cunning. And his power shall be mighty, but not his own power, right? This power doesn't even belong to him. But through cunning, uh, cunning and sinister schemes, he's going to rise to power. It says, and through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hands and shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. And he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand or without human means. So this we know from history as we read this, it is amazing in detail what we know about Antiochus Epiphanes. That he is going to take away sacrifices. This is exactly what he did. He's going to desecrate the temple. That's exactly what Antiochus did. He actually, it was so sacrilegious. He was so just blatant in his disregard for God and disregard for the Jewish people that he sacrificed a pig, which was unclean to the Jewish people. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. I mean, this is just how evil that he was. In fact, the Jews gave him a different name. They named him Epiphanes, which means madman, because Antiochus was evil. Antiochus was responsible for killing tens of thousands of the Jewish people. This was a reign of terror. And he was going to, he was going uh, to really desecrate the temple. He had no tolerance for the Jews. He hated them. This is a BC Hitler. This guy is evil. He sold the high priest position to people that basically just bid on it. This is, this is another desecration to the Jewish people. Took away their sacrifices. He even put up, or he, he even started worship uh, to, to the false god Zeus in the temple. Finally, the Jews had enough, and they revolted. We read about this in the book of First and Second Maccabees. Now, those books aren't canon, they're not scripture, but they're historical. There was a man, Judas Maccabees, that led these revolts against Antiochus. And it was a lot of guerrilla warfare that took place. And it took place over several years. And eventually, they were going to be victorious. And partly because Antiochus, he's going to die suddenly. This is exactly what Daniel's predicting is going to happen. That Antiochus, he's going to be broken without hand, without human means. And this is what happens. Antiochus, Epiphanes, eventually is going to die. And he's going to die of some unknown disease. Like, he's not going to be killed as you would expect. An assassination or die in battle. 
No, he's going to die. He's going to be broken with, without human hand, without really any explanation is what this passage, is what Daniel's predicting. And we know from history, that's what happened. Antiochus dies rather suddenly. And the Jews cleanse and rededicate the temple. In fact, you, heard, you know of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. Well, this is where that celebration comes from. When the Jews were restored the temple, they rededicated the temple after this madman, Epiphanes, who they named, nicknamed Epiphanes, after he's gone. The Jews were going to be victorious in their revolt. Why? Because Antiochus is going to die. As 20, verse 25 says, broken without hand or without human means. It says, in the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. And after, he says, I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Daniel is going to be so troubled by this vision. And Gabriel's explaining the meaning of this vision. But Daniel is so grieved. He physically becomes ill because he's seeing God's people being desecrated. He's seeing God being dishonored in such a horrible way. Daniel actually becomes ill, but then it says he, he rose up. He continued to do the king's business. He continued to do what he needed to do, but he was astonished at this vision. This is, this is why Bible teachers say this is perhaps the most prophetic chapter in all of the Bible. And this is why many people think Daniel couldn't have been written in 530-something B.C. It's too descriptive. It's too, there's too many details that he describes that are going to happen. And they happen. But as believers, as we read this, what does this mean? Well, I think it can give us tremendous confidence in the scripture, amen? That, that God's word is true. This book, it's unlike any other book. That this book is not just history, though there's history in it. This book, this book is God-breathed. That God has given us his word. That it is true. That there are many that try to discredit it. But they will not be and have not been successful. That many hammers have been worn out on the anvil of God's word. That many, what that means is many people come at this book. But they will not be successful. That even in our post-Christian era today. Where there's many attacks on God's word. There's many people that try to discredit it and disprove it. A hundred years from now, they will be forgotten, but God's word will still stand. Isaiah the prophet says this, that heaven and earth might pass away, but the word of our God, it will endure forever. Peter says the same thing. He says that, that the word of God will stand, the word of God will last, that you can trust that the Bible is true because it predicts things before they happen and those things happen in detail. But not only does this chapter give us confidence in God's word, it gives us confidence 
that God is sovereign over all rulers and all nations. And as we look back on history, that God was in control over the events in history, rest assured God is in control over the events today. That God is over all rulers, that there are people that, that, and nations that think they are powerful, but God is in control over them. That we can have confidence that our God is sovereign. That our God is in control. But not just generally speaking over the world or over nations. That God is in control over the things that are going on in your life right now. The things that you feel that you have no control over. That's actually a good place to be. Because it causes us to recognize that God is in control over those things. That God not only is in control, but he truly cares what you're going through right now. God cares about the injustices that you have faced. God cares about the things right now that keep you up at night. God cares about the financial stress that you have. God cares about the relational conflict that you're in. God cares about the physical needs that you have that are overwhelming. Today, at the, the conclusion of the service, talk talked to several people just with tremendous needs and they're so discouraged because they keep getting bad news. They keep getting bad news, but know this, that you have a God that not only cares, but a God that is in control over all of those things. He cares about your life right now. And he is sovereign over all of that. And so as we read this and think, well, great, this is kind of cool. It's history. We see prophecy. Great, but what does it mean for us now? Well, it means God's word's true. We can trust it. And it means God's in control of your life. God's in control of my life. God is in control and God will have the final say. Not the critics in your life, not the haters, not the people trying to destroy you, not the, not the people that mean evil against you. God's going to have the final say because he is in control over all. That he rules and reigns. He sits on a throne. He is not pacing. He's not stressed. God is on the throne seated showing he has power and he has control and he is not worried because he is God. And he truly is worthy of our worship. He truly is worthy of our devotion. Why? Because he was in control in Daniel's day. And God is in control right now in our day. Let's pray.